Welcome to Surely You're Joking, The Case for Mars, a book by today's guest, Dr. Robert Zubrin, nuclear engineer, scientist, helped design the plan to send humans to the red planet and bring them safely back to Earth. Uh, the plan's called Mars Direct. It's outlined in The Case of Mars. Zubrin's been a very strong advocate for the human exploration of Mars, and I've seen him talking about it since I was a kid. I always wanted to meet him. I was doing a gig in Colorado, and I thought that would be a good time to uh, swing by and see if I could visit him, and I was lucky enough to do that. If you go to patreon.com slash syj and you donate $25 or more, uh, the first few lucky people will uh, get a signed copy of The Case for Mars, signed by Zubrin himself. Here he is, Robert Zubrin. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Robert Zubin. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, and thanks for agreeing to do it. So I didn't actually know until recently that you were a nuclear engineer, that that's your PhD is in nuclear engineering, which is awesome because I, I do nuclear physics. And I'm very excited about nuclear power, particularly for Mars. So I wanted to start off by talking about that and how you felt about nuclear power and uh, nuclear rockets in terms of a Mars mission. And if you think it's necessary or... Or not necessary? Um, nuclear power um, is extremely important for the um, human exploration and settlement of Mars. Um, you know, on Earth, we have, uh, in terms of major power sources, uh, fossil fuels, fuels in various sorts, um, there's hydroelectric, and there's nuclear. Um, and then much, much smaller are solar and wind. On Mars, uh, the air is only 1% as thick as the Earth, and so wind is not really an option, uh, except for driving balloons, carrying probes. Uh, solar power on Mars is only about 40% as strong as is on Earth. Mm. And oh, because it's uh, further away. Because yeah. it's further away from the sun, uh, and it's unreliable because there can be dust storms that go on for weeks. That R would uh, Right, I think uh, the Pathfinder mission shut down because of that, I think. It's, yes, it's well, a, a robot can simply go dormant, but people can't. And um, so the energy storage requirements to be safe with solar power uh, are very large, and uh, which makes solar power, while possible, uh, unattractive. Uh, fossil fuels, we can make fossil fuels on Mars, um, you got to get them there. But you got to, well, no, you, you can make them. Oh, you, oh I okay, see. Okay, but it takes energy to make them. And so that leaves us with nuclear. So we really do want to have surface nuclear power on Mars. Um, and, uh, you know, in today, uh, for missions done in, in uh, the near future, and the medium term, it'll be uh, controlled fission reactors. Uh, someday there'll be fusion reactors. Uh, in fact, Mars has uh, six times as much deuterium as uh, per hydrogen as Earth does. So, in fact, fusion is quite attractive for Mars, but we don't have it yet. Yeah, we don't have it even on Earth yet, right. unfortunately. Um, but, in fact, that may be, uh, because it is so attractive for Mars, that may be one reason why the Martians take the effort and uh, determination to develop fusion power, and we'll get it from them. Um, no joke. So it, yeah. I mean... Um, no, you've been very upfront about this for a long time. You've been very forward-thinking about the the political situation and the, what the future of Mars is, like the interaction with Earth and, and Mars for a long time, and that's been really interesting. You jumped no, right no. into it with this. Yeah, we've... no, frontier cultures tend to be very in, uh, inventive. Mm -hmm. I mean, the steam engine was d invented in England, but the steam boat was invented in uh, very early uh, America in the 1790s. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the steamboats were made practical. And the telegraph. Yeah, uh, right, both of right, these right. things for All transport to... and communication over the kind of long distances that were needed uh, to create a continental nation. Right. And um, so I think that Mars is also going to be an extremely inventive nature uh, nation. Uh, and that, in fact, I think that uh, the primary export of a Mars settlement will be inventions. That's really interesting. That's so. Uh, I like your book, um, Case for Mars. That's and you go. You mentioned making hydrocarbons. That's one of the things you talk about on there, uh, because 
it seems like a really important feature going to Mars is not, I think even in the smallest estimates or something like 30 tons of fuel to get off of Mars. And so uh, you're a very early proponent of making the fuel there. So landing a light craft that can then be fueled. I think in, uh, in the Martian, I think that I can't remember if they build the fuel there or not, but I think they do, but they do, they have these Mars lander vehicles and I think they sent them ahead to get um, made. Uh, do you think that that's is there a concrete plan to do this right now with NASA or are we still well, just sort of uh, that is of course the approach that I have advocated uh, since the 1980s and it has more or less been accepted by NASA in fact NASA has uh, a procurement right now which has gone out to the community to build uh, full-scale demonstration systems for making propellant on Mars. We here have at Pioneer have already built subscale systems. Uh, That's that awesome. Subscale relative to a human mission, full-scale relative to the sample return mission. But they, you know, right now, probably within a month, NASA is going to announce contracts um, to um, several companies to develop. Um, systems for making rocket fuel on Mars. That's fantastic. I'm assuming these would be very automated because yes, I guess for safety reasons you send these ahead and then make... yeah. So, do, uh, so you uh, you wrote Case for Mars quite a while back in '96, but a lot has changed recently because now we know there's a lot more water, and so I think there's been some interest in doing um, you know electrolysis. Do you, are you guys have you changed your your outlook on what's the most economical way to do it? Or are you still well, more interested in doing it from uh, okay. the atmosphere? Um, water was suspected on Mars in the 90s, and I was among those who was a believer. And uh, it has now been proven that there is water on Mars. Um, so in the original Mars Direct plan, we proposed to, just to be sure, we would bring the hydrogen with us and would react it with CO2. Uh, okay. So we wouldn't have to count on Martian water. Although we said even then that once we were there and had sorted things out, we probably would start using Martian water and not have to bring hydrogen anymore. Um, today, you still might want to take that position, even though we know that water is there, because we don't know how easy it will be to extract from the soil or ice or permafrost. Um, but at this point, uh, it is conceivable to... Uh, advocate skipping that step and saying, look, this is what we're baseline. We're going to get Martian water and Martian CO2 and make methane oxygen out of that. Mm -hmm. uh, the big change, though, since 1996 hasn't been um, in our knowledge of Mars, uh, but in the development of reusable launch vehicles um, by SpaceX. SpaceX. Yes. This has the potential to really change things in terms of both the cost of exploration missions, but more importantly, in terms of the potential for settlement. Frankly, in terms of exploration missions, we could afford to buy expendable heavy lift boosters and just send the mission. It would still be a tiny fraction of NASA's budget to do it that way. But if we want to settle Mars, uh, we're going to have to bring the cost of interplanetary transport down um, from, you know, a billion dollars a shot to, uh, you know, a million dollars a shot. So it, and that's it, not possible if you're throwing away the hardware. So it sounds like you're a fan of the, the new direction that they're going. Instead of the SpaceX, uh, sorry, instead of the Falcon Heavy, the sort of redesign of going with this BFR well, rocket? Well, uh, okay, first of all, let's start with the beginning. All right. <laughs> um, I don't want to too what much. What <laughs> SpaceX has shown is that they can develop hardware in one-third the time, at one-tenth the cost that had become acceptable in the mainline aerospace industry. And then they showed that they could develop things that uh, the mainline aerospace industry had never developed at all, i.e. reusable boosters. Um, and, uh, you know... Augustine Commission canceled Bush's moon program saying that a heavy lift booster would cost $36 billion to develop and take 12 years. Uh, SpaceX did it in six years for less than $1 billion, and the thing is three-quarters reusable at that. Um, so they've, they've demonstrated a new paradigm. Now, Falcon Heavy itself could be used to launch the Mars Direct mission. Uh, Musk is proposing to refuel the second stage of the BFR rocket 
he could also, uh, and this is what I have suggested to them, is that they demonstrate this by refueling the second stage of the Falcon Heavy. If you did that, then Falcon Heavy, which can now lift 60 tons to low Earth orbit, would be able to send 60 tons on trans-Mars injection. You, you and, that's, and that's enough to do Mars direct. Uh, and you'd have a booster that's three-quarters reusable, and you'd be in business straight away without having to wait for BFR. Now, BFR, of course, is going to be three times more capable than Falcon Heavy. Um, and, uh, frankly, uh, would be able to send... Uh, uh, you know, 50 tons on trans-Mars injection without refueling its upper stage. So when you say refueling, you mean uh, in orbit of Earth first? Yes, so. yes. Musk hit the baseline of the BFR and, and the its predecessor, the ITS, was that they would refuel the second stage on orbit. Um, now, his plan involves flying that second stage all the way to Mars, landing it on Mars and flying it back. I... Uh, don't think that's the best plan. I think you should use refuel the second stage and use it uh, ideally to throw the payload on a highly elliptical orbit just short of Earth escape, an orbit comparable to a translunar trajectory, which loops back around and comes back to LEO a week after it left, instead of flying it all the way to Mars, landing it and flying it back, in which case you get it back in four years, and you have to fly back this big, way oversized second stage. I would use the second stage basically to throw it on its way, but keep that thing in geocentric space and only f uh, send the payload to Mars. Uh, can, can you tell us about uh, Mar your Mars Direct plan? Also, by the way, there, I've got to mention you have a book, Mars Direct. Okay, I, I have a book called Mars Direct. I, but, <laughs> but there's but also my, the plan. My, okay, and, uh, but the most extensive explanation of the Mars Direct plan is in my book, The Case for Mars. Uh, and um, the... The plan works like this. You, you, you do the mission with two launches to Mars. So in principle, it could be two launches of a heavy lift booster or two throws of a Falcon Heavy with a refueled upper stage um, or two throws of BFR type rocket. Uh, and um, so you're sending payloads to Mars. Oh, they would have to be at least 40 tons each, okay? And if it, you can do more, so much the better. Okay, so you're sending two 40-ton payloads to Mars. The first one is the automated payload. It's unmanned, it's unwomaned, no one's in it at all. It is the Earth return vehicle. That flies out to Mars, you land it on Mars, and then using an automated system of the type that we've demonstrated here on the subscale on which NASA now wants to see built full scale, um, you refuel it with, uh, take Martian carbon dioxide and water and turn it into methane and oxygen rocket propellant. So this is a vehicle that would be ideally something very similar to like what was in the Martian that, you know, something that's a lander, it's empty and gets refueled and then the astronauts sure. get inside. Exactly. Do we need more than one like in the Martian for Well, I'll look, let me explain the plan. All right. Okay. Um, so we send the Earth return vehicle to Mars. We have it make its fuel. Once that is done, at the next launch opportunity, we launch two more rockets. One sends out another Earth return vehicle, but the other sends out a habitat with a crew of astronauts in it. And depending upon whether you have 40 tons or 50 tons, it could be four, five, six astronauts or so, uh, fly out to Mars in this HAP module. Um, and I would advocate a HAB module uh, comparable in architecture to our Mars Desert Research Station, mm -hmm. which, which is... I, uh, I see great pictures of that on Facebook that you post. Sure. Those are awesome. Yeah. So that's a cylinder about 27 feet in diameter and uh, 20 feet tall. So it's got two decks each with 10 feet of headroom. Um, and you have actual people living in there. Yes, that, we do. As for we have, research. We have crews of six carrying out sustained programs of exploration from those things, both one in the desert and one in the Arctic, uh, while operating as if they were on Mars. Have you personally spent time it, in there? Yes, I have. Um, I, I was... Uh, I commanded the first two crews at the uh, Arctic station and the first crew at the desert station. Um, and the... Um, Okay, and we've now had uh, 
were 194 crews in the desert station and, tw- and 12 in the Arctic. Uh, <laughs> the the um, anyway the so the crew flies out to Mars in the habitat module. They land it next to the Earth return vehicle. They use that as their house and laboratory on Mars. They're on Mars a year and a half, and then they fly back to Earth in the Earth return vehicle. Now, the second Earth return vehicle that's following them out to Mars, we could land right nearby so that they would have two Earth return vehicles, either one of which could take it home. We could land it on the other side of the planet, in which case it would not be available to them, but it would open up uh, a new region. Or we could land it at some distance away within their own region, say 100 miles, 200 miles away. So it would define a new landing site, but still, it, it, if it came down to it, be available to the crew to come home with if they had to. So that one is very similar to the to what um, Andy Weir had in the Martian. Where yes, it it's, is. It's close, but not very close. So it's still That's right. it's exciting if you have to go use it. Yeah, and, and that is in fact what I laid out in the case for Mars. Mm. Um, I'm pretty because, sure he based it on that. For, well, well. Uh, he yes, Andy has said that he's based a number of things on, on the case for Mars, and that could be one of them. Yes, and the um, so. Um, and that's my favorite approach because I do think uh, before we pick a single site for a permanent base, we should ex- explore a number of locations. But uh, at least for the first several missions, I'd like to have two complete Earth return systems available to the crew. But the baseline plan is that one is available for the next crew, and which goes there along with another Earth return vehicle, which opens up site number three. So every two years, because you launch to Mars every two years, you launch two boosters to Mars, which is one, an average of one per year. This is something we could easily afford. And, I mean, here you go, Falcon Heavy launches, uh, $120 million each. NASA has a budget of $20 billion, um, which is, you know, almost 200 times that. Um, this is something that we could easily afford to do. So something that struck me about BFR was that um, it seemed like there was, to me, it seemed like a lot of reuse in that I was a little shocked to see that he really, that, that SpaceX wanted to land a reusable vehicle both on Mars and then also have that entire vehicle come back to Earth rather than the, appro- the NASA approach or the SLS approach of landing a capsule or do you believe in that more or do you think the capsule is more likely oh well actually how do you feel about sls because this is a big online argument all the time so it's almost like a feud between spacex and sls although well the thing about sls okay um the concept that is the basis of sls which is essentially a shuttle derived heavy lift vehicle Mm -hmm. oh and space uh, launch system for the listeners okay uh was laid out in the 80s and in fact my team was one of those who contributed to that. And uh, if you look at Mars Direct, you'll see our launch vehicle called the Ares is very similar to SLS, and we proposed that in 1989. Now, if that had been developed in 1989 or in the 90s or even in the first decade of the 21st century, it would have represented a major addition to our spaceflight capabilities. Um, but NASA has taken so long to develop it yep. yes, that it have. has now <laughs> been bypassed by events. It's like... Uh, you know, the Spitfire was a great fighter plane, but imagine the British had waited till the 1990s to develop it instead of having it in the 1940s when it was needed. Um, and the uh, try to go against jet fighters. Okay, yeah. well, yes. Now, okay, so uh, is one of the great fighters of World War II. Yeah, but, my favorite but plane. But time marches yeah. on, yeah. Mm-hmm. and um, so time has marched on, and um. <laughs> I've never seen a booster program take this long. Uh, you know, Saturn V, they awarded the contract in 1962, and its first flight was 1967. It was five years from contract award to first flight. And that was a totally revolutionary vehicle at that time. Mm-hmm. The SLS is not really a revolutionary vehicle at all. It's it's heavily based on shuttle technology, It's it, it which itself is 1970s technology. And, and yet... Uh, okay, the actual program was started in 2004, and here we are, 14 years later, it is yet to fly, and the first test flight won't even be for another couple of years. And, and they keep pushing that back, too. And... Okay, and, and it's amazing that this is not um, a, a, a program with any drive in it, and 
Um, I think that it needs to be reconsidered, and if it's going to continue, the management needs to be reorganized. And But furthermore, the other problem with SLS um, is that it's a program that's being done in isolation from any applications. Uh, you know, it'd be like if we did the Saturn V program in the 60s without developing the Apollo Command Module and Lunar Excursion Module. So you have this big rocket that you can shoot up into space with nothing for it to launch. Okay, that would have been incredibly stupid. Uh, we developed the hardware set for Apollo as a, as a combination. And um, SLS is being developed in isolation from any application. The, the, the SLS should have been developed in the 90s in conjunction with a set of hardware for doing lunar and Mars missions. At this point, it's um, uh, it, it, it's becoming Maybe increasingly a, difficult to defend. Yes. Yeah, it is very frustrating that it keeps taking so long. And I, I've talked to astronauts who were very excited about launching on it. And even and a lot of them really wanted to be on the maiden flight because I you know I think one of the selling points of it in the beginning was well it's so close to shuttle hardware we understand it really well so it will be very safe but then they still you know then they delayed even the first manned flight to just be a test flight and it costs so much it's very frustrating. Well, here's the thing. I mean, once again, SLS at this point, if they had SLS today, it would still have some applications because even though. Um, would cost 10 times as much as a Falcon Heavy. It could deliver 50% more payload, and it has a much bigger fairing. And if you need those things, there it is. But uh, once BFR is available, SLS is going to be completely obsolete. And um, so if they want SLS to have any time where it um, is useful, they, they've got to get this thing flying. So speaking of uh, changing management, um I read your letter to the new administrator, um, uh, Jim Brunstein, um, and uh, you you were very emphatic about so speaking of a mission that doesn't really do anything. You you talk about the proposal to build a moon space station. So uh, which uh, I completely agree with you. I don't quite understand the point. I'm very pro moon base myself for a very specific reason. I'll give you my opinion on that a little bit. But I wanted to hear about you. You called it something really funny. You called it a toll booth in space. Yes, the lunar and, orbiting toll booth. And so, so can you just uh, expand a little bit on on your letter? Um, well, yes. What you told uh, them? Okay. You know, there's legitimate. A discussion as to how we should prioritize between going to the moon and going to Mars. Uh, but going to a place that's almost to the moon, but not the moon, is just this, this orbit. Yeah, is, is really pretty stupid. Yeah, and I got to agree. It's like the space station, but just further away. I mean, I well, don't know what it's, science it's, you can do there that's different, really. I just, well, yes, it's a space station, but much more logistically difficult to support. Um, and uh, frankly... Uh, quite useless. And not much uh, we, of a test case we, of landing on Mars because no, it's, they, well, there's no, no landing. There's no landing, yes. Uh, if you want to land, you need a lander. Um, and, you know, the people who are, are are naysayers about Mars saying, well, we can't send humans to Mars. We have no lander that can land the minimum of, you know, you need a 10-ton lander for Mars. Mm -hmm. And we don't have it. Well, if that's the problem, then you should be developing a 10-ton lander for Mars, not building lunar orbit space station. Furthermore, the lunar orbit space station doesn't do you any good for going to the moon. We don't need a lunar orbiting space station to go to the moon. We don't need a lunar orbiting space station to go to Mars. We don't need it to go to the asteroids. We don't need it for any purpose whatsoever. Yeah, I think some people have been selling this uh, this vague idea that somehow it's like a slingshot or something, but it doesn't really do that. Orbit. I mean, there's just no orbital mechanics that makes that helpful <laughs> no it makes no sense whatsoever now what uh, about people had talked about basing interplanetary electric propulsion spaceships at the lunar orbiting space station but you know if you are in lunar orbit the easiest way to get to mars from there is not to take electric propulsion which would require um, uh, uh, you know, a delta V of at least seven kilometers a second to go from lunar orbit to Mars. You can instead with a, a delta V of about one kilometer a second, you drop from lunar orbit down to a, a low Earth perigee and then give a little kick with a chemical engine and bing, you're on your way to Mars. And uh, so if you had a lunar orbiting space station, if you were there, 
and you wanted to go to Mars, you wouldn't take electric propulsion. The idea makes no sense whatsoever. And if you were going with chemical propulsion, you'd never would go to the lunar orbiting space station in the first place because it takes just as much chemical propulsion to get from low Earth orbit to a lunar orbiting space station as it does to go from lunar low Earth orbit to Mars directly. Mm-hmm. So the the entire concept makes no sense. So the why idea. Are, why that, are they doing it? Why why is it being proposed? I don't quite get it. <laughs> it. Okay, this is a fossil of another stupid idea that was called the Asteroid Redirect Mission. Mm-hmm. Which and, is now canceled. I yes, think, yeah. which was canceled because it was totally stupid, which was to bring a fragment of an asteroid back from interplanetary space to low lunar orbit to give astronauts in the Orion capsule someplace to visit. Okay, well, this is the asteroid retrieval mission without the asteroid. This is, and this was even, by the way, mentioned. And when they discovered how difficult it would be to bring the asteroid to lunar orbit, they say, well, why don't we just go to lunar orbit? We can pretend the asteroid is there. (laughs) And um, so, I mean, you know, talk about paper moon. I mean, um, uh, it wouldn't be make believe if you believe in me. Um, Okay, so the, 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 as the song goes, and the no, it's it's really nutty. It is um, doing things in order to spend money rather than spending money in order to do things. Mm-hmm. If your goal is to go to the moon, go to the moon and land on it. Yeah. And land on it. Yeah, yeah that's where the and moon it, is. The moon is on the ground. So, how do you feel about a moon base? I'll tell you my personal opinion. But I want to hear yours first, though. I'll tell you what I feel about it. Okay, look. Uh, a moon base and a Mars base are the two proximate goals of our space program. Um, I do not believe we need to have a moon base for 20 years before we consider going to Mars. Uh, on the other hand, I do not think that going to Mars precludes going to the moon. I would want to do these programs in parallel. That is, if I had a humans to Mars program, you can only launch to Mars every other year anyway. So you'd want to have a moon program in order to pay. I mean, in other words, if you have a launch vehicle, and I don't care whether it's Falcon Heavy or SLS or BFR or Blue Origin or anything, supporting that program means supporting the entire cast, the supporting force of people. That, And that's true whether you launch it once a year or 10 times a year or once every three years. You have to pay all those people. Your costs go down as the launch rate goes up. And the. Although the, that's a big criticism of SLS that a lot of SpaceX people say is they well, say, well, but, it, you know, it's a jobs program. Well, but at the same time, where do those people go if you have a like a well, shutdown like well, we had? Let, after we'll, sh- we'll get to that. But let me just uh, stick with this. So. Uh, the Mars program would greatly benefit by a parallel moon program that was paying for the launch vehicle uh, entirely during the off years. And probably we'd want to use it several times going to the moon, even during the years that we do go to Mars, because we don't want to launch a launch vehicle twice every two years. We want to be launching it at least like six, regularly, yeah. Uh, yeah, at least, say, six times a year. Uh, well, maybe it'd be t- nice if we could get to what the shuttle promised, you know, 60 times a year, but yeah, that obviously right, never but, happened. But anything reasonable like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I also think that NASA and the American space program needs to have its confidence restored. And I mean, there was a time when we understood that we could do things, that we could take risks and we'd pull it out. And frankly, that's what got us to the moon. We got to the moon off of the confidence that we had built up by winning World War II. Mm-hmm. Okay. When Kennedy said, you know, we're going to be on the moon within eight years, it wasn't because they had a detailed plan for getting to the moon in eight years. No one knew how to go to the moon in 1961. But we had an understanding of ourselves that we're Americans. We can do anything. Yeah. And, and we can do this. And when you come and, out of a war with, you know, where people literally got off boats and got shot at, you know, to go take over places. The the fear of losing, you know, doing something that dangerous, and we all agree it's dangerous, that's fine. But the idea that you can't do it if it's not 100% dangerous, we, I feel like we sort of lost that. Although, you know, losing the shuttles was like a really bad blow to well, that confidence, that- I think. Yeah, look, there was a different attitude towards risk. John F. Kennedy himself had been a torpedo boat commander. Okay, he'd been in combat. I mean, uh-huh. he, he was really, in a certain sense, of the same species as those fighter pilot astronauts who uh, were the main force of Apollo. Uh, the the uh, 
and he understood that you can do things even though that they're risky. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my, my grandfather worked on the Apollo program and he knew the three astronauts in Apollo 1. And there was a lot of guilt and feel of urgency, but it didn't stop the program. You know, it... it it was the urgency was, okay, let's not have this accident again. You know, let's figure out what we did wrong. Let's take this seriously. Remember, they're not just payload. And they they went back to work. And it didn't, yeah. you know, it didn't stop it. It's still at a mission. No, there, there was an understanding. The mission comes first. Mission success is the top priority. Mission success requires actually flying the mission. Right. Okay. <laughs> yep. The, the, yep. the, the, uh, and the mission having, that he said having is- a moon program that never launches is called a failed program. Right. Okay. And the... So uh, I think that, um, frankly, we can be back on the moon within four years. And if it takes eight years before we're back on Mars, so there's four years during which we're doing lunar operations but not doing Mars operations yet, fine. Uh, I disagree with those who say, once again, that we have to be on the moon for 20 years before we attempt to go to Mars, uh, you know, because we need the learning experience and yada, yada, yada. yada. No. Uh, Or that we have to go to the moon because we can't go to Mars. No. Okay. But we should go to the moon because we can, because there are useful things to be done on the moon. uh, Most notably, I think, uh, arrays of telescopes can be put on the moon uh, into optical interferometers. That would be extremely exciting, would lead to enormous discoveries about the universe, about extrasolar planets, might discover new laws of physics uh, that will give us the stars. Um, But so, yes, the moon and Mars, by all means. Can I tell you Uh, one of my ideas about uh, a moon base. Why I'm excited about it as a, as in concert with the Mars mission. Um, I've we're both pat, pat, uh, inventors. I so say you have a lot of patents, including uh, what I think one that really was interesting was three player chess. That, that was, was my really, first. Patent. That was your first patent. I thought that was uh, that was adorable. Um, so uh, kind of reminded me of three dimensional chess <laughs> from Star Trek. Uh, but so I have a lot of patents in 3D printing, and I I've made some NASA proposal in 3D printing, and one of the thing that's the kind of technology I think we need on Mars, but I don't think we can be developing it. The developments happen. The innovations happen so quickly now. You know, there's laser sintering. There's chemical. Uh, there's really great methods now where they can build a cast out of sand and then actually cast real metal parts. Uh, really lightweight, small things. And I think there's a huge industry to be had here that definitely will help Mars missions because it's all related to this idea of like, don't take everything with you, you know, do some mining, which you talk about a lot, like uh, extracting iron from um, uh, Martian soil and stuff like that. Now, I know that moon geology is not the same as Mars, so it can't be exactly the same, but I think it'd be really nice to have the turnaround time that the moon allows, you know, like that you you don't have to wait these long year points to find out if your 3D printer had a new innovation because the world we're in now, that stuff happens way faster than four-year cycles. Um, And I just, I feel like doing that stuff on a moon base would really help develop for, um, from, you know, the progress of these of Mars bases at the same well, time. Well, the one thing I like about the moon, frankly, is that the opponents can't make the argument that it's impossible. And <laughs> the, 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 it's like we already done it. <laughs> okay. And uh, with the equivalent of a calculator, <laughs> the computing that, power of a calculator. That's right. A, <laughs> uh, I did it with this. Yeah. This is a slide, slide roll. roll. <laughs> okay. Now. You know, the these people, you know, like the NASA bureaucracy has taken the approach towards Mars of a 10-year-old looking for a snow day should be declared. Oh, look at that. It's snowing. It'd be much too dangerous for me to go to school today. <laughs> um, so, you know, you get these uh, radiation studies, for uh-huh. example. I which... live in L.A., so my kids use that argument when it's raining. Yeah. <laughs> like, ah, it's going to hurt us. <laughs> exactly. Okay, when in fact the radiation risk of going to Mars while it exists, it's actually a minor portion of total mission risk um, uh, and quite small compared to the engineering risk of going either to Mars or to the moon. And um, so it's not the showstopper, it's just something exotic. And um, 
but they they look for these things uh, even as they expose uh, crews in the space station uh, cumulatively (laughs) to comparable doses of radiation Mm -hmm. as they would get going to Mars and no one says oh we can't do that because of the radiation it's because they actually want to go to the space station it's an activity that justifies their existence whereas Mars um, which while it would certainly justify their existence uh, poses new challenges that they're unwilling to take on and so they're looking for a snow day well well, the th- the one thing about the moon is they can't say it's impossible. Mm-hmm. So it really puts the question to them, you know, do you want to do anything or not? Yeah. And um, which is kind of the question that Mars Direct put to them back in the 90s when I said, look, here, we can get to Mars with current day technology. We can have humans to Mars by 1999. You want to do it or not? As opposed to all these plans involving gigantic interplanetary spaceships using plasma drives and stuff that just, oh, we'll do it as soon as we have that. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, okay. I feel that way with uh, whenever I ask about, because I'm, I'm pretty pro-nuclear power on Earth myself, and uh, a lot of people, their first response is like, oh, well, let's wait till fu- you know, fusion works, and then we'll do it. It's like, eh, well, <laughs> I mean, because I, I believe that will happen. I have no doubt that we'll make fusion, but it's like, you can't wait around to power the planet you know while we're actually uh sitting around wanting this power so it's a bigger problem in california because we have like we've had no nuclear plants built for Mm -hmm. the last 40 years it it is interesting you bring up fusion um i worked in the fusion program a bit in the 80s and um my team leader at los alamos once made a comment though when the oh you're at los alamos too yes oh yeah so Uh, so am i okay um made a comment you know and just seeing having lunch together he said you know when fusion is developed, it's not going to be done at a place like Los Alamos or Livermore. It's going to be done by a crackpot working in his garage. That's what I think too. Okay, yeah. and the I think Iter is a great example of that. Where well, it's, yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, Iter is much worse than the kind of fusion I mean, programs we had in the eighties. Uh, I mean, it almost guarantees it, if it works, it's useless because it's so expensive, it's so big, and so immobile. I mean, it, it, no, in in. The 70s and 80s, the fusion program was moving along at a fair pace because we had competition between different national programs. The Americans, the Europeans, the Russians, Japanese were each trying to upstage each other. And every conference, somebody would come up with some new results or plans for a new machine or something, and that would spur the others on. But then in the 80s... um, all the energy was taken out of it by the bureaucracies of the four major programs getting together and saying, why should we compete? Why don't we just all collaborate on one program? Mm -hmm. And that became ITER, and they spent the next 30 years arguing over where to put it. Um, In the meantime, no new machines were built in the national They even had some stalling point where they were building the foundation, and somehow that stalled. That's a really bad sign when your foundation is part of the, the... But just switching emphasis here, I think what Musk has done may contribute to fusion power. Not because Musk, to my knowledge, is not working on fusion power. But see, what Musk has done. They're not even doing fission, unfortunately, which frustrates me. But but what, what Musk has done, you see, it's not merely shown that he can build a rocket that does X, Y, and Z. Uh, in a way that uh, no one had ever expected. He'd shown that a private space company could do remarkable rockets. Yeah, okay, yeah. A private space company could not only do things that nations previously had to be the player to do, he has shown he could do something that nations couldn't do. So you think and, the and, most important thing is he's showing this to the future entrepreneur somewhere like... Just because no country's ever done it doesn't mean you can't do it. And it doesn't mean that an entrepreneur can't do what nations previously failed to do. Mm-hmm. And um, and there are so, some so, fusion companies that well, are ready in stealth. But so one, one so might SpaceX work. is going to inspire a raft of competing SpaceXs. Mm-hmm. And I believe it will inspire a raft of SpaceX-like fusion companies. Mm-hmm. I hope so, yeah. Because he's shown the power of human creativity. Mm-hmm. I think even with fission, that might happen. Because right yeah. now, fission is very locked up with weapons programs, understandably. Safety of operating. And, I, you know, this. I think that might even happen with fission. It's just like, look, it's we need to do regulation 
outlook on these kind of big projects. Right. So People we're going to see. Really scared there of fission, there are though, some so. fission <laughs> startups looking at thorium reactors, for example, mm-hmm. that are quite promising. But once again, what he has shown is a traumatic example of the power of creativity, mm-hmm. and which is the ultimate resource. Uh, it's the limitless resource. It's the resource that creates all other resources. And um, so it's like when we went did Apollo, people say, if we could send a man to the moon, why can't we X? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, if a private entrepreneur can send a man to the moon, <laughs> why can't we right. make fusion power? <laughs> That's okay. great. <laughs> all right. I got just three more topics I want to cover. Um, one, I was... Uh, I remember you're the first person I heard about this from the the whole duality of the red Mars politics and the green Mars politics. Elon Musk has obviously announced himself as a as a green Mars uh, person. You know, clearly he has. That agree by green Mars, you mean a person who wants to transform to, to Mars, Mars to and, a living planet? Right. Yes. Okay. And you and you predicted um, a long time ago that there's there was going to, at some point there will be a physical clash or you know a, a political clash between people who think it's the right of humanity to terraform Mars as a way of expanding civilization. And then other people are like, no, it has to be this orb of purity. And we've already kind of hit that because because Elon Musk is not, uh, you know, he's a private citizen, even with the launch of the, uh, of the Roadster into space, you know, immediately people are like, oh, no, is this going to disrupt the, you know, the Martian microbes? And um, so how do you feel about the, the Mars protection policy? Like uh, you've talked about John uh, Rummed a lot about this. OK, well, the planetary protection policy of trying to prevent life from Earth of going to Mars and Martian life of coming to Earth is crazy. Um, the uh, first of all. Uh, you know, the one that tends to make the headlines the most is the avoiding back contamination, Mar- you know, the red death coming from Mars to Earth. Well, uh-huh. we get well, that rocks- one was huge in the 50s, though, because that, yeah, yeah. that was the basis well, of most movies. Well, it might make for uh, a good movie. But in terms of science, it's crazy because we get rocks landing on Earth from Mars yeah, all the time. Yeah. We get about 500 kilograms, 1,000 pounds of them every year land on Earth. And if we could get the Red Death from Mars, it's already here, mm-hmm. and it got here long before we got here, yeah. and um, got here billions of years ago. I, I so just... it, it's it's just nonsense. And as far as Earth life going to Mars, well, that's exactly what we want to happen. Okay, we want to take a barren planet and make it into a living planet. Uh, now people say, well, you'll be interfering with the science because we wouldn't be able to tell the difference between native Martian life forms and uh, imported microbes. Nonsense. You know, if you all Earth life uses the same uh, alphabet of DNA and RNA to communicate information from one generation to the next. It's quite specific. We all use it, and but. You know, if if we find uh, microbes on Mars that use DNA and RNA, it's like finding books on Mars that were written in English. Okay, you know their imports. Okay, on the other hand, if you find microbes there that use a different method of encoding information, a different alphabet, mm-hmm. uh, then you know you didn't bring them because all Earth life uses the same alphabet. But it's even besides the point. Because Mars is much more than an object of scientific inquiry. It is that. And we're going to learn the most about Mars by going there. Because, I mean, after all, what is the planet we know most about? Earth. Because, <laughs> because we're, we're here. here. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, um, so stopping people from going to Mars is the most anti-scientific thing you can do. Mm-hmm. But furthermore... Well, also, that is itself a scientific goal, to find out if people can be on Mars. And... Yes. But, the, the, but furthermore... Um, that Mars is more than that. Mars is not owned by the scientists or the exobiologists. Mars is owned by the human race. And what Mars is is a world where new branches of human civilization can develop. New branches of human civilization with new languages, new cultures, new forms of government, new histories of science, inventions, ingenuity, and heroism. And this is a history that is waiting to be made and to abort it uh, on the basis of this conceit is is a crime. It's a crime against the future, okay? Uh, and 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 it should not be allowed at all. And it, it shouldn't be given any hearing. And 
you know well said <laughs> so you know uh you've seen i'm sure you've seen the uh you have a facility on hawaii on the big island you've seen this lava are you familiar with the hawaiian law to 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 claim new land it's the first person to walk across it because the idea is if you have new lava <laughs> it's whoever's brave enough to walk onto it is confident that they can survive it then that's uh they get to to borrow it well, although that, you can't really own land in Hawaii that's just interesting. Get to, to by use the way it. the Hawaiian station is is not ours but it was set up by people who did uh, as it were graduate from our program oh okay, okay. and they initiated their own station and in ours fact being the Mars society yes yeah. the Mars society has two stations and some people uh, Kim Benstead and some other people uh, were participating in our cruise, and then they went off to start their own station. And we have also had people in Austria start a similar activity, and in Israel and in Poland. And we like this. We want there to be lots of stations. We don't want to be the only people with stations. We're trying to open up a new field of research, and the more people that are doing it, the better. It's like lift vehicles. There's yeah. little harm in people competing and, and working on it and getting more... Yeah. Yeah, um, I noticed you talked a little bit about the uh, the intellectual dark web, but this is kind of a new topic. Are you a member of the intellectual dark web? Well, I don't. <laughs> I, I actually don't like the term. Uh, somebody well, it sure sounds ominous. Uh, it sounds sounds, <laughs> sounds sinister. Um, it, it sounds but, like a like a nerdy drug ring or something. Okay, but um, but I am a free thinker who doesn't fit in with any of the current political tribes. Um, the, uh, I was a Republican, but I had to quit when uh, Trump got the nomination. I regard him as intolerable. And, and I could uh, almost tell because your posts, when you, when you mention, when you bring up politics a lot on Facebook and you have a lot of Republican friends who are, who counteract your, uh, comments. So I find yeah, that really no, I, 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 I was a delegate to the Colorado state convention in 2016 and, uh, I was horrified by, uh, the Trump's representative, Stephen Miller, and what he had to say there. And, uh, uh, he's from I, Santa I, Monica, by the way. What? From Santa, he's Stephen Miller's from Santa Monica High School, which okay. I think is so weird because they keep talking about, the, you know, he'll just unabashedly talk about the coastal elites. It is like he was literally in Washington, uh, walking coastal, distance yeah, of Venice. Yeah, yeah right. There you go. <laughs> okay. Well, no, I, I, I'm very much a believer in the melting pot. Uh, I believe in all men are created equal. As Lincoln said, it's the founding proposition of our country. Uh, and uh, um, the, the, the one thing that really makes America truly exceptional, in my view, is that anyone can become an American. That that's the, our, our exceptionality is our belief that anyone can become an American, that and, we are not exclusionary. And it sounds and, like you uh, have that view of Mars also. Yes. Anyone can become a Martian. Yes. Hopefully. <laughs> I, so I don't fit in. On the other hand, I don't fit in with the left either because I do not believe in collectivism. I do not believe in Malthusianism. I have, it boggles my mind that people who consider themselves to be members of the left should support regressive taxes on fuel and electricity. Um, which are the most regressive kind of sales tax there can be. So uh, I am profoundly anti-nuclear. Yeah, that and, one of and, the and then things? yes, and be anti-nuclear, D despite and, being very anti-global warming emissions. You know, simultaneously contradictory. It makes no sense opinions. to me. The left used to be very pro-technology. Mm. They supported nuclear power. They supported Apollo, uh, and and yet it, it, I don't get it. So. Um, to me, I just call them as I see them. Okay. Well, I really enjoy your posts on that. And then one quick question. How do you feel about the planetary society's Mars idea? It's almost, they propose putting an orbital station with humans and, uh, basically like the moon orbiter, the moon station, but on Mars. And that really, uh, I don't think that, I, 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 I don't <laughs> think that, that idea uh, has any merit uh it is uh I mean, it like it's it has... not quite as dumb as the lunar orbiting station because at uh, least it's far <laughs> well well because you know the idea that you get any advantage by controlling robots on the moon by eliminating the two second time delay of controlling them from earth is patently absurd right, right. um so you can advance an argument that gee we can control rovers on mars or mars orbit and eliminate the 20 minute time delay but look you know we're building self-driving cars now that can drive around los angeles without mm -hmm. accidents There's a lot less traffic on mars so 
you know, we, we don't need a Mars orbiting station to control rovers. If you're going to go all the way across space to get to Mars, you go to Mars. Because when you're on the surface, a human explorer on the surface of the planet can make discoveries that rovers cannot make and can make the same kind of discoveries the rovers can make literally a thousand times faster. Mm -hmm. You know, let me just tell a story. Uh, All right. This goes back to the uh, actually the very first motorized EVA done at the Mars Desert Research Station, and which was a crew that I led, and I was leading this particular EVA. And we went around five kilometers to the north of the HAB, driving around, looking at stuff. And then we saw this little steep hill. And I said, why don't we climb to the top of that hill, and we can get a view and see where else we can go. So we did that. And uh, it's questionable whether a rover could have done that climb. It might have been able to. But we saw this little steep canyon nearby. And it looked very interesting. The sediments had been cut wide open by a flow of water and it had steep cliffs and you could see all the geology. So let's go over there. So we went over there and we climbed down into the canyon and no rover could have done that because it was a two meter straight drop. And uh, so we're in the canyon and we're going around and, uh, you know, and then I see this strange looking rock. I saw a lot of strange-looking rocks, but they didn't mount anything. But then I saw this one and picked it up and dusted it off, and I called over Jen Heldman, who was a geologist who was in that crew, and she looked at it and he said, she said, this is bone, okay? I think this is bone. And so we took that little rock, which was about the size of a softball, and we took it back to uh, the hab, and she cut it open that night, and sure enough, it was dinosaur bone. And we reported it to the Bureau of Land Management, and they put it in the record. And about six years later, professional paleontologists from the Burpee Institute in uh, Illinois contacted the BLM, and they said, has anybody found any dinosaur bones around there? And they said, well, yeah, these Mars people have found one. Here's the GPS coordinates they gave for the find. And they went up there, and they checked the place out, and they dug it out, professional paleontologists, and they have unearthed the largest find of dinosaur fossils in North America in decades. It is as significant a find as Dinosaur National Monument. Oh, that's awesome. And, <laughs> um, and it all came from a human looking at a place. Yes, and so we were operating in, in spacesuits, the works. We were in mm -hmm. sim. No robotic rover would have made that fine. No robotic rover would have been able to get into that canyon. No robotic rover would have uh, noticed the, just this anomalous nature of this rock, would have been able to dust it off, would have been able to section it the way Jen did, and certainly not dig the place out the way the professionals have. So this is an example of what human explorers can do on Mars. Um, and uh, so if you want to go to Mars, you go to Mars. That's, you know, to do science. And obviously, if you want to build a civilization on Mars, you got to go to yeah. Mars. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for being on Surely You're Joking, Dr. Robert Zubrin. Uh, is there any place people can yeah, follow sure. you, maybe ask yes. some sweet questions? Or? Sure. A couple of things. Number one, uh, people can check out the Mars Society. It's at marssociety.org. And um, you can sign up to get our emails there. Uh, we also have a Facebook Mars Society page. Um, we're also having our next international conference in Pasadena. Yeah, I saw that. Pasad I am going to go to that. Are you going Pasad to that? Absolutely. Pasadena Convention Center, August 23rd through 26th. It's right be across a lot of great the street speakers. from uh, the Planetary Society. Yes, fact. that's right. And uh, and we may have uh, Lou Friedman, who's the former director of the Planetary Society. He may be one of the speakers. And many speakers from Jet Propulsion Lab, but from all over the country, all kinds of people. Um, and um, we um, then, of course, I also have a book called The Case for Mars. Yep, fantastic. You can get book. on Amazon. Yep. Uh, I brought some for you to sign. If you're okay with that, sure. I would. Uh, you can, as always, I usually want to interview an author. I, I, uh, to go through Patreon, and I'll ship them a signed book if they sign up with Patreon. So I already bought the book, so then I can send it to them. But if you don't want to sign one, yeah, you can get it on Amazon. Um, also, Mars Direct is on there too. I didn't wasn't able to get those in time to get enough to be signed, so I just have the case for Mars. But that's a really good one. Um, thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. Any, 